Good morning and welcome to Malvern Hill Baptist Church. My name is Craig. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, somebody in the sound booth would turn those, those, those window lights on. That'd be awesome. Oh, look at that now. That's great. Seeing that prettier? Um, uh, we're glad that you're here on this 4th of July weekend. Um, thank you so much for being a part. We are taking a break from the book of Acts for the entire month of July. So uh, uh, this Sunday we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that patriotic chapter about love that has seemingly nothing to do, right, with the 4th of July. Thank you for being with us. If you would stand with me in honor of God's word, I would appreciate it. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray you would show us how to be grown up as Christian people. Help us to love as Jesus loves. Help us to make a difference in our world. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Why in the world are we preaching this sermon on the 4th of July? Well, the 3rd of July, but the 4th of July weekend. Because there's nothing we can do better for our country than be good followers of Jesus. See, the reality is what's far more important for our country than to stand up and have a rah-rah speech about our country is for us to make sure that we have our priorities in order and live as faithful followers of Christ. Listen, this 4th of July weekend didn't get off to a good start for me. I woke up this morning and could not find my red, white, and blue bow tie. I can't even be patriotic in the way I dress without that. It has been challenging for me today. And yet... Here we are on July the 3rd. In 1776, July the 3rd was an important day. Because on July the 3rd, 1776, the Continental Congress is actually debating the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence didn't come about in the way that many of us might think. It wasn't like they all just showed up with hot heads and go, aha, sign it and run on. Somewhere in, in, in early June, the idea that they might 
uh, that they might uh, declare independence and separation from Britain came up. And as a result, there was a committee, just like a good church. The committee got together like government always does. Our government's been full of committees since before we had a government. So the government forms a committee, and the committee exists to basically write the Declaration of Independence. And Thomas Jefferson, uh, being all that Thomas Jefferson was for good and ill, Thomas Jefferson gets the opportunity, the, prob- or the privilege, and the responsibility of drafting the Declaration of Independence. And so Thomas Jefferson is largely responsible for the writing of that document. At each draft, now remember, he didn't have Microsoft Word or Google Docs and the ability to work back and forth. He would write it out on on, uh, paper with a quill. And then he had two primary proofreaders and editors who were working with him, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. And so at each draft, he would send it to them. They would make suggestions or recommendations, send it back. He would rewrite the whole thing. And they'd do this all over and again several times. And so by the time that the Congress convenes on July the 2nd, they have what is Jefferson's final working draft of the Declaration of Independence. They debate the Declaration of Independence July the 2nd and most of July the 3rd and then a large part of July the 4th. And at some point, they finally come to an agreement, having made all the suggestions and changes and consolations, is that the right word, that need to be made to try and get everybody on board. you got to remember, the Declaration of Independence is just like any other conversation or agreement that any of us have had with somebody else. Nobody got everything that they wanted. There were some, for instance, who were strict abolitionists, like John Adams, who wanted to see that, aboli- that slavery be abolished immediately. Well, Thomas Jefferson is writing the Declaration of Independence. He's pretty well opposed to that as a large slave owner in the colonies. There were lots of things like this. How are they going to work about states' rights? you got the South Carolina delegation that's up there, and look, they're South Carolina. So what are they worried about? Y'all leave us alone, and we'll leave y'all alone. That's kind of how it is. But July the 4th, they finally come to a decision, and they... they they declare, they make the declaration, they, they adopt the Declaration of Independence. It's not until July the 5th that we have the sort of finalized draft copy of the Declaration of Independence printed. And it's actually not until August the 2nd that the Declaration of Independence is signed. And even then, not everybody was present to sign the document. It took a while before all of the signatures made it to the Declaration of Independence. That's how it is that really our country sort of wanders its way into its infancy and into its beginnings in a weird sort of awkward start and stop kind of experience. But I want to just mention the fact that the Declaration of Independence was written by men who actually wrote it. Now, these were men who were unusually intelligent and educated. Thomas Jefferson knew something about everything. Um, he, he, he was an engineer. He was a, a, a well, he, farmer would probably not be the best way to say it, but a, a, a plantation owner. But, but he was hands-on in many of those aspects of the planting. He was a, a philosopher. He was, a, uh, he was actually, believe it or not, even though his religious beliefs and ours would vary uh, widely, uh, Jefferson was, was very engaged in, in sort of theological understandings of his own right. Jefferson did a little bit of everything. And he reminds me of an old adage. You ever known somebody, people say he was educated beyond their usefulness? At times it would seem that Thomas Jefferson was that person. Well, we talk about people being educated beyond their, their usefulness, but... Usually when we say that, we're actually talking about somebody that seems to know a whole lot but does absolutely nothing with it. 
When it's all said and done, we think about the founding fathers of this country. What they did probably more than anything is they actually did something about the things that they believed. They actually put their beliefs into practice. Even when those beliefs were wrong, they put them into practice. Folks, when we think about what a mature person is, this is where we begin to make the transition, by the way. We think about what a mature person is. We rarely think about maturity being all about how much a person knows. Just imagine if somebody wanted to run back and they talked about all the things that somebody knew on July the 4th, 1776. Nobody really cares today about who the smartest person was in Philadelphia that day. The only names that are remembered are those who actually did something about what they believed. They stepped up to the plate. John Hancock wrote his name in huge letters because why? He knew he was probably signing a death warrant. And he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that when he wrote his name, he was doing it with boldness. Dear King, if you're coming for somebody, start with me. Folks, when we think about what it is to be mature followers of Jesus, oftentimes, for some reason, we equate Christian maturity with something like how much a person knows about Jesus or how much a person knows about the Bible. And, and we, we neglect a lot of times to speak about how it is that a person behaves or acts with the knowledge that they have been given. As we begin to transition this sermon toward 1 Corinthians 13, I want us to think about people of action and consequence versus people who just don't do anything. People who make a difference in the world around them. When Paul speaks of immature followers of Jesus, Paul doesn't mention what they don't know. If you'll turn with me in 1 Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, here's what Paul has to say about immature believers. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So not spiritual, but fleshly. Moving forward, verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you were not re ready. Paul said, I was trying to nurse you to health because you couldn't eat solid food. But he says, even now you're not. Paul says, look, I was trying then, but even now you can't handle it. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In verse 4, he says, for one one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Here's what Paul has to say about the believers in Corinth. He said, your immaturity is evident to me, not because of how much you do or don't know about the Bible. Your immaturity is evident to me because you act like immature people. Your immaturity is evident to me because of the actions of your life. Folks, as we consider this morning what grown-up Christianity looks like and how it is that we should be faithful followers of Jesus... I want you to know this morning that grown-up Christianity, mature Christianity, is not first and foremost how much of this you know. It's first and foremost how much of this do you live out in your everyday life. Are you being obedient to the Word of God as it has been delivered? 
Paul doesn't speak of mature Christians by what they know. For Paul, maturity is seen in the way they act and how they live. And I want us to keep this in mind as we consider 1 Corinthians 13. See, most of us know 1 Corinthians 13 as a wedding passage, right? I used it in most of my wedding, um, I guess you'd call it a sermon. Let's call it that. Most of the weddings that I, I, I perform, I use 1 Corinthians 13. But it's actually more than that. 1 Corinthians 13 is actually a passage of rebuke. It's a slap on the hand from Paul to the Corinthians. Paul begins this letter really dealing with a little bit of business. Remember, 1 Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. It's a messed up church. They've done all kinds of things wrong, and they keep doing all sorts of wrong things. And then he gets to chapter 12. And he says in chapter 12 that God has given you spiritual gifts in the church for the purpose of building up the church. And so there's teachers and preachers and evangelists and prophets and those with gift of faith and all these other things. And he says, and that's great and it's so important. Apparently what was happening in Corinth is there were people who had been given gifts uh, from the Holy Spirit, but rather than using them to build up the church, they were using them to benefit themselves. It's really good for us that we were just looking at Simon the Magician last week who wanted the gifts of the Holy Spirit so he could profit for himself. Apparently what's happening in Corinth is you have people who have received gifts from the Holy Spirit, gifts of teaching or preaching or prophecy, and rather... And using them to build up the church, they're using them to build up their own reputation. Using them to build up their own resume or their own repertoire. And so Paul says, look, these gifts were given not for your personal gratification. They were given for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God and for the building up of the church. And it's in the midst, in the context of all that, he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But before we go there, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 12, 31? Earnestly desire the higher gifts, but I will show you a more excellent way. What a great transition. What is that more excellent way? He says, beginning in verse 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries. What's he doing? He says, if I have all of these gifts, if I'm a teacher or a prophet or if I'm wise beyond my years but I have no love in me, I'm just a clanging gong or a noisy symbol. In other words, look, without love, you are nothing but noise. And as followers of Jesus, as we consider what it means to be mature in our faith, I want us to see three things that mature Christians are. Not just should do, but are. These are the things that you should be. The first thing, mature Christians are patient. Mature Christians are patient. See, 1 Corinthians 13 could be really spoken of as just a chapter about Christian maturity. Because loving people are mature. Um, and, and so Christian maturity, or mature Christians are patient. Patient, kind, long-suffering, loving. Very few characteristics illustrate love better than patience. Folks, when we really love somebody, don't we have a tendency to overlook many of their flaws? Don't we? Aren't you so grateful, men, that your wife doesn't see all of your imperfections? Isn't it a blessing? Isn't it great? Guys, have you ever had that moment where maybe your wife says something about some imperfection and you honestly, they don't believe us when we say it, but you honestly had never even noticed it. It's not even present in your mind because all you see is the person that you love. Not only do we tend to overlook these things, we tend to be so much more patient with the people that we love. How many of y'all have known those parents who were so unbelievably, ridiculously 
patient with wayward children because they loved them and wanted more for them. Love is patient. It is waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting. And then when everybody else would have thrown in the towel, love says, I'm going to wait a little while longer. Loving people are patient because they long for the best possible outcome. Mature Christians are patient. Look at verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. But then watch. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What gives love the ability, or excuse me, why do these things bear and endure? Do you understand that he's not saying, if you love people, do this. He's saying love does this. In other words, Paul says, if you want to see what love looks like, this is what it is. You don't have to run around and say, if you love somebody, you better do all these things. No, no, no. You look around and you go, if you're doing all these things, you must love that person. Christian, do you love people enough to be patient with people? Now watch this. Do you love Jesus enough to be patient with people? Do you love Jesus enough to be patient with people that you disagree with? Patient with people that you might even think are unintelligent. Do you love Jesus enough to become a patient person? Do you love Jesus enough to be patient when you're driving? Man, that almost was like one of those earthquakes. It was like a slow build. Like I could hear it far off and it got here and then it died off. Do you love Jesus enough to be patient in the checkout line at the grocery store? Some of y'all are part of our church because you've moved into our community in the past few years. We're really glad you're a part of our church. We're really not glad that you're in the checkout line at the grocery store. There's so many of y'all. Like every time I go to the grocery store, it's backed up into the aisles. I don't even understand how this is possible. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and, and, and I used to say, open up more checkout lines. And then I look and I go, they're all open and they're still backed up this far. I, going to the grocery store used to actually be enjoyable for me. I'm one of those weird people. Now, it's not. Except for when I get to see all of you when I'm there. That, of course, is a joy for me. Unless you're in front of me in the checkout line. <laughs> but do we, do we love the Lord enough to be patient sort of in all the areas of our life? Patient enough to, to honestly just slow down a bit. Why in the world would you be patient with people? Because Jesus has been so patient with me. Jesus has been so patient with me. Folks, when we think about what a mature believer in Jesus is, they are patient. Folks, when we're thinking about what it looks like to be faithful citizens of this country, do we often think of it as being patient? No, so often we think of somehow as though my responsibilities as a patriotic American runs counter to my responsibilities as a faithful follower of Jesus. So as a faithful follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to be patient, but somehow or other as a patriotic American, I'm supposed to want my way today. Do you understand that we're going to reach a place where we have to make a decision? Am I going to follow Christ or am I follow the spirit of the age? Let me tell you something. Our country would be better if it was filled with a whole lot of Jesus-loving people who were more concerned with what Jesus wanted than anything else. Love is patient. 
And if love is patient, then watch. Mature Christians are patient because mature Christians are to be loving. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Jesus or God says, what? God is love. And we are to be imitators of him. What does that mean? We are to be defined by our love. Folks, are you patient? Parents, are you patient with your children? You know, this is my greatest struggle in life. I wish it wasn't, but it is. I was um, with some, my, my wife and kids are out of town this weekend. They deserted me. Um, and um, they'll be back this afternoon. But uh, last night I was invited over with some folks to eat some food and watch some fireworks. And so they had all of their children and I had none of my children. That's, I, that never happens in my life. I have four children and I went to a place where there were children and I had zero. I didn't even have a wife. It was just me. Me in my chair, and my seltzer water, and I brought my fan too. Because, why not? And I had so much fun listening to all these parents parent their children. I just laughed. I mean, laughed hard. I was so patient with these kids. They weren't all being good, but I didn't even care because they didn't belong to me. Do you know how patient I am with y'all's kids? I'm so patient with y'all's kids. Right? I am. And I just watched, and the kid would say something, and mom or dad would be dealing kid the business, and I'm just, I, I was, I got finally reached my rod and trying to hide it. I was unashamedly just laughing out loud. Because it's easy for me to be patient with your kids. It's hard for me to be patient with mine. Like if my kid had been there, I'd be like, you stop that. That's where our struggle is, right? And yet, Mature Christians are growing in their patience with their family and with the world around them. Love is patient. Folks, let's be patient. The second thing this morning, mature Christians are positive. Y'all, I, I wrestle with what word to use right here, and I stuck with positive because it gave me three Ps for my sermon. You might not like positive. You might prefer optimistic or hopeful. That's what Paul says, right? That, that, that Christians bear all things, believe all things, endure all things, or excuse me, love, verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Mature believers are hopeful, optimistic. They are not negative Nancys. We are called to more than that. Mature Christians see broken people, and when they do, we must see a chance for change. We have got to be different than the outrage of the world around us. We've got to be known by the overflow of God's love that results in a hopeful optimistic for the world around us. We actually believe that people can change. We believe things can change. We believe the world might actually be a better place. Look, as followers of Jesus, we're the people that are called to give everybody the last hope when nobody else will because we know that when we were dead in our sins and transgressions that God reached down and saved us. And if He can do that for us, He can do it for absolutely any soul on God's green earth I, 
I think one thing that bothers me a great deal, even about the church today, is how quickly we are to throw our hands up as chicken little, right? The sky's falling, the sky's falling. You go home and you look at Facebook or you watch the news and the next thing you know, you know, even you show up at church and you're just convinced that the world's going to hell in a handbasket and absolutely nothing can be done about it. And I'm just mad and I'm done with it. Folks, that just doesn't fit with God's word. We are to be hopeful and optimistic. You say, well, we've read the book and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, it might. Sin is going to continue to abound. We know that. But we also know the end. We know that Christ is the king. He's seated on his throne and that all of these things that we see happening in the world around us only take place because God has allowed it or perhaps even decreed it. We know these things. Who are we to sit around wringing our hands and just be angry at the world around us? No. Folks, we have got to be the people that find ourselves on our knees before the Lord, praying for the world around us, but confident, hopeful, and optimistic that God is seated on his throne. He has not been dethroned, and the world is going to be just fine because God is right there. Watch. Even in politics, we are called to be hopeful and optimistic, loving, Positive, not negative. If you can't do that, then please turn off your social media and turn off your TV because God's called you to something bigger and better than this world is encouraging you to be. Folks, if you can't do that, you need to identify the things in your life that are temptations for you To cause you to not act like Jesus. And you need to cut those things out of your life. Again, unless it's your children. You can't cut them out. you got to work on that. I don't play golf. Right? And Now, I like to watch golf. It's, It's actually a... Golf played well is beautiful. Craig playing golf is not beautiful. And and this is no lie. The reason I don't play golf, one of the greatest reasons I don't play golf is because it tempts me to sin. It makes me so angry. The last time I played golf, I was so mad. And I remember, I looked around, I said, I paid money to do this to myself. And I decided right then that I could spend my money on something that didn't take me further away from Jesus. If I was going to spend money, it should be on something that was going to bring me joy and not tempt me to sin. Folks, are there things in your life that are pushing you away from the the hopeful optimism that Christ is calling you to have? Do this for me. If you can find those, excise that cancer from your life. Because mature followers of Jesus are expected to be filled with hope. What keeps us from being filled with hope? Well, if we go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says it's because we're fleshly and not spiritual. Now, it actually makes perfect sense when we think about the world around us, doesn't it? When I indulge my flesh, my sinful flesh nature, 
I tend to focus only on sort of the bad things in the world around me. And then I sit there and I stew on it for a while. And after I stew on it for a while, I find myself all up in all of my feelings. And I've no longer saw hope in the world around me or considered how I might love my neighbor as Jesus commanded me to do. Instead, the only thing I know is all these stupid people in the world around me aren't doing things I want them to do. And I'm just mad at everybody. And then I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to be mad there too. Paul says, you are fleshly. I need to go back to drinking spiritual milk because you're not ready for the hard food, the red meat of the gospel. Folks, listen to me, please. If you have found yourself becoming negative and angry and impatient and you've somehow convinced yourself that you have to be that way so that you can hold the line for Christianity and Christ in this culture. You are not living biblically. You're instead indulging your flesh. I don't know if you've looked around at our world today, but our world desperately needs for the people of Christ to stand up and to act like Christ. And if you think that you're the one that has to go in and overturn the tables and kick the money changers out, let me just remind you that in all of Jesus' 33 years of life, we only have two instances where Jesus needed to do that. And you're not Jesus. It's rare that we've got to respond to the world that way. More regular that we need to be responding with patience and hope. And then finally this morning, with presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Mature Christians are present. Faith, hope, and love. Look in verse 13. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, remember, I told you that chapter 13 is sort of a rebuke in the middle of this book. Now, if we go back and we look at verse 8, we see love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we stop right there. And again, we've got this illusion back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with all of these different gifts. Okay, And Paul says, look, you're really proud of all these gifts that you have and you think it makes you super Christian, but let me remind you, all those things are going to be gone one day. They're going to burn up. But love is the thing that will keep going on. He says, if you want to really be growing in what it is to be Christ-like, then let's double down on the thing that we will keep doing for all of eternity, and that is loving. It never ends. So that's, that's what he said. So then verse 10, For when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Did I tell you this is a bit of a rebuke? Paul just looks at them and says, You're acting like children, and it's time to grow up and be a man. It's time to be a grown-up right here. Y'all are arguing about whether or not you follow Paul or follow Apollos. Paul says, we're on the same team. There's nothing to argue about right here. Y'all found a way to create political parties within the church. And Paul says, here's the problem. We serve Jesus. And you're arguing about whether or not you follow one of us. We're on the same team. 
And now there's divisions among you about who's the best teacher, the best prophet. And Paul says, all that's going to grow away. And he says, hey, when I was a child, I thought and spoke like a child. He says, in other words, when I was a baby, I got all up in my fields about who was the best teacher, who was the best preacher, who was the smartest man in the room. Paul says, but when I grew up, I put aside childish ways and I decided that all of that stuff was going to burn up anyway. And I was going to focus on loving the people around me. And then he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Faith is trust. Trust in what? Trust that the Lord is going to get you there. Faith is believing in God and his perfect plan. It's trust in Christ. So we might, might say that faith is like this. Faith is, is God saying, trust me, I'm going to get you there. Trust me, it's going to be okay. This is faith. We're just sort of an absolute confidence. I don't know where we're going, but I know that if Jesus is taking me there, it's going to be fine. So, so I'm going to trust Jesus to get me where I need to be. Faith. Hope is a confident expectation. So I, 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 I have hope that there is salvation laid up for all who trust in Jesus, for instance. So if, if faith is, trust me, it's going to be okay, hope is, because you trust me, that's where we're going. You understand? Like, over there is where we're headed. You can't see it yet, but that's where we're headed to. I have hope. I have faith in Jesus' ability, willingness, and desire to save me. I have hope in an eternal home laid up for me with Christ. Okay? Subtle differences here, but there is a difference. Matter of fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, when Paul, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, this is probably not Paul, but when the writer of Hebrews defines love, he does so using, or excuse me, defines faith, he does so using hope. Faith is, is a hopeful expectation kind of thing. Um, so this is what faith is. So faith will be fulfilled when I stand before Jesus. My faith will be made sight. Faith is no longer needed. I don't have to trust in the unseen when I can see it. You understand? So I'm trusting in Jesus. Faith is I trust in you, Jesus, even though I don't see you. But one day, when faith becomes sight, faith goes away. I'm not trusting in what I can't see. I'm trusting in this Jesus that I can reach out and touch. So faith is gone. Okay? Hope will one day be realized. So right now I have a hope, a confidence in an eternal, in my eternal home with Christ. One day, however, I will actually get there. And in that place, I'm not hoping in it anymore. I'm living in it. You understand? There's a difference between hoping in something and living in something. Okay? So that's it. So my faith will be fulfilled. My hope will be realized. But love will never end. I no longer need faith and hope when my faith is made sight, but love will continue. As a result, we are reminded here that love is present. Work with me for a second. You see, in the presence of Jesus, faith and hope pass away, but in the presence of Jesus, love grows. Now, there's that old adage, right? That distance makes the heart grow fonder. And to some degree that's true, but what is it that we are hoping for in that distance? We're actually hoping and anticipating that we would come back together because we know that that love, the, the, the desire of love is to be united with each other. So mature Christians are loving people and as a result, look, they are present. Present. Mature Christians show up. Followers of Jesus are willing to inconvenience themselves for the sake of others. 
And if that doesn't make good sense to you, I want to remind you of a couple of the teachings of Jesus, right? Remember, he said that love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, number one. Number two, love your neighbors yourself. So there's this love aspect. But, but when he's asked what he has loved, do you remember what he told the story about? It was the story of the Good Samaritan. So you got a priest that comes by, they ignore him. you got a Levite that comes by, they ignore him. The person who loved the Samaritan was the person who picked him up. Who got in his business. Who provided care. Who did what was necessary. He was the person who was willing to be present in the life of somebody else who had absolutely nothing to offer in that moment. Are you present in the lives of others? No, 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 look. I get it. Like some of you, I, I, I don't want you to feel sort of being preached at this morning if you're the person that says, I wish I could be, but I, I just can't get out. You know, I'm 85 years old and I'm, I've got limited mobility or I've got these health issues. That is, I understand that completely. But what I'm asking instead this morning is, is for those of you who are physically able, what keeps you from being present in the lives of other people? You know, I find that when I force myself, because sometimes we have to force ourselves, right? If we're all honest, to be regularly in the presence of other people. You know what I discover? I discover it gets a little bit easier for me to be, be optimistic. It's a little harder for me to be negative. And believe it or not, I actually begin to be a little bit more patient. It happens. Mature Christians are loving people. We started off this morning talking about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. So Thomas Jefferson and John Adams would later become rivals. Um, and, and as a result of that, ri political rivals. And, uh, so Adams is president, serves one term. Uh, Jefferson beats him. And after that, they don't speak. I mean, this is, this is like high school drama, maybe middle school drama. It's maybe that bad. You've got two of the most important men in the founding of this country. Matter of fact, two of the most important men in world history in the past, you know, 300 years or so. And yet, these men get so frustrated and angry with one another that they allow it to drive a wedge between them. They go from being close friends who communicate regularly to not speaking to one another, I think, for 12 years. 12 years. Before another friend intervened and encouraged them to rekindle their friendship. And this friend urged them to rekindle their friendship in large part because he believed that it was, it was important. For the overall health of this young nation, that two of its most important founders should not live at odds with one another. Hey, if you two have created and sort of advocated for this idea of representative democracy, if y'all can't find a way to get, to get along together, what hope do we have for the world around us? Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were not Christians. Jefferson famously, John Adams maybe not quite so famously, John Adams was an incredibly moral man. 
but was refused to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So their story is not really about what should Christians do, because they weren't. But it's a really good reminder for us that if we're not careful, even grown adults can act like middle school kids. Well, folks, if we're not careful, even grown-up Christians can start acting like middle school Christians. See, we can get sort of so comfortable in who we are that nobody pushes back against us. And we stop digging in. And then, hey, watch. We start making ourselves feel a little bit better. I learned two more memory verses last week. Everything's going fine. You know, I'm at church every Sunday. Don't tell me I'm not a good Christian. And then you get these hard things from Paul. It rubs up against us in the wrong way because what Paul says is, oh, by the way, I'm less concerned with how much you know and more concerned with how much you're putting into practice. And hey, Corinth, you've done a really good job at having a whole lot of people there talking. Y'all done a great job at debating and arguing. And Paul says, but it all just shows me how immature you are. In your faith. You imagine reading this for the first time? So the way this would have taken place is somebody would have been elected as the reader and they would have stood up in front of the whole church and they would have read this letter out loud. So the whole church would have heard Paul's words. So if you're the guy who's been elected to read it, then you probably get like the advanced copy. You know, you, you read it first time, make sure you can say all the names and all the words, and then you get there and you're like, oh, I've got to say this stuff out loud? Don't you know he wishes he could have called or texted Paul in that moment and be like, hey, are you sure you wanted to use this word right here? You wanted to call them all childish? You want me to tell everybody here that they need to be drinking milk instead of eating hard food? Really, Paul? But the answer, of course, is yes, absolutely. Paul wanted and needed to remind the church that being a follower of Jesus has a whole lot to do with acting and living like a follower of Jesus. And folks, I want to remind you today, even though I don't have on my patriotic tie, that we will be the best citizens of the country that the Lord allows us to live in if our priority will first be about living as best as we can for Christ. And trusting everything else to sort itself out on the back end. God has allowed us to live in a country where we can worship Him freely. How dare we trade our worship of Him for our worship of our own political desires? He's given us this privilege to steward faithfully. Let's make sure that we give Him the glory that He deserves by working diligently to live our lives in accordance with His expectations and not expectations that are placed upon us by worldly powers and worldly desires. How do mature Christians behave? They act like Jesus. 
They work diligently to love each other and love the world around them. But more than anything, they put their focus on loving the Lord who's created us all. Mature Christians are patient, and positive, and present. Mature Christians are salt seasoning the world where God has placed us. This morning, that's the invitation. Are you loving? Are you really loving? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you love the world around you sacrificially? Do you love them in such a way as to honor the God who has loved you so much? It's a call that God's put on our life. It's an expectation that we don't get to avoid just because we don't like it. This morning as we sing, perhaps some of you should come pray this morning, confess that you've not lived a life that is loving. And when people speak about you, they don't, they don't, your, your life doesn't look like 1 Corinthians 13. It looks more like 1 Corinthians 3. Folks, if that's where you are today, can I encourage you to get over all of your excuses? It doesn't matter why you're doing it. It's wrong. It's wrong. So repent today and follow Christ with all that you have. Grown-up Christians should look like grown-up Christians. And I want to encourage you today to be grown up in more than name only. To be grown up in love. As the Lord leads you to respond this morning, I encourage you to come pray. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive me, Lord, when my life hasn't been characterized by love, but by my own selfish desires. Help me, Father, to treat others as you would have me to treat them. Lord God, to put my love for you first above all else. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with us.